Hello, and welcome to ASA's first author talk on ASAPresents.net. My name is Brian Snyder. I'm the marketing director at ASA. Shortly, I'll be joined by pilot and author Captain Christopher Pearson, who will discuss new regulatory requirements for pilot professional development and resources from the third edition of his new book, Pilots in Command, Your Best Trip, Every Trip. Without further delay, let me introduce you to our author and presenter. Captain Christopher Pearson penned the first edition of Pilots in Command in 2014, targeting pilots who are transitioning from being first officers to captains at Part 121 carriers. Now in its third edition, Pilots in Command has expanded to include valuable information to student pilots looking forward to an airline career, new hire pilots at the airline level, pilots upgrading to captain, and experienced pilots looking to advance their skills in leadership, professionalism, and airmanship. Chris is a line check pilot for a major U.S. airline. He has over 13,000 hours of flight experience as both a captain and first officer, flying for regional and major carriers domestically and internationally. He has a bachelor's degree in airway science, aircraft systems management from Rocky Mountain College in Billings, Montana. And with that, Captain Pearson, I will hand it over to you. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, it's an absolute honor and a privilege, especially since uh, this is the first uh, event for ASA Presents.net. Uh, so thank you so much for the opportunity. It's uh, it's going to be fun to uh, to be with everyone. And thanks for everyone who is joining us live and anyone who's uh, actually viewing this on the archive version as well. Um, just like you said, Brian, um, just thinking about some background for pilots in command, um, a little bit over a decade ago when I was an instructor at the regionals, um, my colleagues and I found that pilots that were upgrading from first officer to captain were looking for more resources uh, when they took that, that next step in their career, not just the resources we're giving them in the flight simulators and in the classrooms for ground schools, but they wanted actually like books, articles, whatever they could get their hands on to advance themselves to the next level to become better pilot professionals and as especially as they're stepping into the role as pilot command and as captain. And that's that was the genesis for pilots in command. I started writing a couple little articles, a couple blog posts, and before you know it, people were saying, hey man, you should make this into a book. And with the help of ASA, um, now it's been a book that's been uh, coming up on its ninth and ninth anniversary. Um, like you mentioned, and now it's third edition. So um, just like you said, if you're a, a new pilot working on a private pilot certificate and you're looking forward to an airline career, this book is definitely for you. If you're stepping into INDOC at a new hire class at an airline and you want to just kind of know what the alphabet scoop of, uh, of AQP and um, what IOE is and things like that, at the airline level, this is definitely a book for you. And if you're an experienced pilot like me, there's definitely good information you can glean from it to uh, to make yourself a, a better pilot professional. So um, it's fun to talk about that. And that's why we're here tonight. We're not gonna talk about uh, pilots in command, but also uh, pilot professional development. Um, pilot professional development or PPD um, is a, a new requirement for uh, pilots at air carriers operating under part 121. And we're gonna talk about what gave rise to the FARs that require PPD as well as some tools from Pilots in Command that will hopefully help pilots um, advance their professionalism. So <clears throat> by way of background um, and what gave rise to um, these regulations, 
fortunately, we have to change the tone a little bit. And um, there was three significant accidents that occurred um, between 2004 and uh, 2012 that uh, really brought to light a lot of uh, issues in the airline industry that the FAA wanted to take care of, had, was trying to mitigate, but it also basically uh, became the straw that broke the camel's back and, and uh, the Congress legislature had to step in and, and make uh, laws to get changes uh, made at the regulatory level. So the first accident um, is Pinnacle Airlines 3701. And I have a narrative about this accident in the book that I, I'm gonna read, because I think this kind of sets the scene quite well for what uh, we're gonna be talking about tonight. <clears throat> so 3701 um, was a ferry flight. It was a repositioned flight from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas to Minneapolis. Um, there was just two people on that, air on that airplane, the captain and the first officer. Um, and here's what happened. Fearing an empty airplane from point A to point B is one of the most rewarding and fun types of flying airline pilots get to do in their careers. For many pilots, the reward of ferry flights comes from being able to hearken back to the good old days that preceded the airline careers when flying was not only to build experience, but for fun. A two-pilot crew with no one else on board to worry about, no passengers or cabin crew, makes the job much less stressful. The airplane performs like a rocket ship, light and nimble and seemingly overpowered with the empty seats in back. However, the opportunity to fly such a trip is not an excuse for pilots to forget that they are professionals. The crew of Flight 3701, shortly after departure, tested the limits of their airplane just for fun. At 450 feet AGL, literally just after takeoff, the crew aggressively pitched to 22 degrees nose up, pulling 1.8 Gs, activating both the stick shaker and stick pusher of the stall warning system. At 15,000 feet, they tried some more fun, again pulling 2.3 Gs and another abrupt pitch up climb angle of 17 degrees. During this climb segment, the rudder was abruptly deflected left and right in excess of seven degrees. Climbing through 24,600 feet, another aggressive climb maneuver was executed at 1.8 G. The NTSB says in the accident report, quote, the pilot's intentional maneuvers, which were not required for any operational reason or safety consideration, placed the airplane in a flight regime that likely exceeded the airplane's certificated flight envelope, end quote. But it wasn't these maneuvers that pushed the operational envelope to the brink of disaster. For personal and not operational reasons, the NTSB concluded, the pilots decided that the ferry flight's filed cruise altitude of 33,000 feet was less preferable than seeing if the aircraft could make the leg at its service ceiling of 41,000 feet. The climb to flight level 410 was performed not only outside of standard, standard operating procedure, but dangerously on the backside of the lift drag curve. The pilots began the climb with an airspeed of only 203 knots, transitioned to Mach 0.63, and slowed to Mach 0.57 once they leveled off at flight level 410. The prescribed climb speed in Pinnacle's standard operating procedure was to climb to, at no less than 250 knots indicated speed, or Mach 0.7, regardless of climb rate. At 410, the flight deck voice recorder captured both pilots' excitement and awe of their accomplishment. Despite noting that their airspeed was nearing the stall advisory indication, they continued at flight level 410. And one crew member decided to leave the flight deck to go and get some sodas from the galley. The fun lasted only for another two and a half minutes. The Kansas City Center air traffic controller remarked that he hadn't seen a CRJ-200 at 410 before. The captain responded that they, quote, decided to have a little fun with an empty airplane. But after the words left his lips, 
he realized that the plane was behind the power curve. Now this portion of the, I'm gonna read here is from the actual CVR transcript and it does uh, contain expletives, which I'm gonna just use the word junk for what the expletive might be instead of actually using an expletive. Captain, junking things losing it. First officer laughing in a nervousness, in nervousness and surprise. Captain, we're losing here. We're gonna be junking coming down in a second here, dude. First officer is still laughing, but now maybe a little more incredulously. Captain, this thing ain't gonna junk and hold altitude, is it? First officer, dude, it's losing it, with a nervous chuckle. The captain called the Kansas City Center to ask for a lower altitude, but his center told them to stand by. It was too late. The stall warning system of the CRJ activated as the, as the airspeed had deteriorated to 150 knots, or Mach 0.53, and the aircraft's angle of attack continued to increase. The first automatic response to the stall warning system is to activate the stick shaker. Motorized counterweights shake the control columns to alert the pilot into recovery action. This happened five times without any response from the crew. As the aircraft's angle of attack continues to increase, the stick pusher, a mechanical push forward on the control column to force the nose over, activates concurrently with the stick shaker. This happened four times, each time with the crew pulling back against the pusher. The, pitch, the aircraft pitched up to 29 degrees, at which point the wings stopped flying. Then in full aerodynamic stall, the nose sliced down to a negative 32 degrees as the plane violently, violently rolled into an 80 degree left bank. As the airplane fell out of the sky, the negative airflow to the twin GE turbofans caused both engines to flame out. The crew struggled to regain control in the pitch black sky over Missouri. As they fumbled for flashlights, the airplane's warning system chimed and enunciated system failure after system failure as the engine spooled down. The crew reestablished a controlled descent but not before the cores on both engines locked up. Their attempts to restart each power plant failed, and despite efforts to glide to the Jefferson City Memorial Airport, their aircraft crashed into a residential area two and a half miles short of the airfield. The last words heard on the flight deck voice recorder from the captain were indicative, in the very least, of regret and of resignation. Ah, oh, junk. We're gonna hit houses, dude. So again, sobering way to start off our discussion tonight. But this is, again, the backdrop here for what gave rise to why we now have regulatory requirements to talk more and learn more about professionalism in the flight deck. The next two accidents that I'm gonna to talk to you about, I'm not, I don't have a full narrative. Actually, I have a, a shorter narrative on, on one of the accidents in the book, but I'm not gonna read it in the interest of time. But the next accident, sadly enough, occurred not only just five days later, but also occurred in the Show Me State in Kirksville, Missouri on October 19, 2004. This was Corporate Airlines doing business as American Connection, Flight 5966. This was a Jetstream J32. They were flying from St. Louis to Kirksville. There were 13 fatalities and two injuries. Uh, in the NTSB's uh, uh, summary, basically, of the uh, probable cause, they said that contributing to the accident were the pilot's failure to make standard callouts and the current FARs that allow pilots to descend below minimum descent altitude into a region which safe obstacle clearance is not assured based upon seeing only the, air, uh, the airport approach lighting system. So what happened here is they were flying to Kirksville, they were executing an instrument approach procedure, and they didn't see anything yet, uh, but uh, they ended up descending below MDA, and they ended up getting trees and crashing um, without seeing any of the airport environment in sight. 
So the NTSB said the pilot's failure to establish and maintain a professional demeanor during the flight and their fatigue lightly contributed to the degraded performance. The final crash, which was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was Colgan Air Flight 3407. Colgan Air was operating a uh, in this in this accident operating a Dash A Q400 uh, from Newark Liberty International Airport to Buffalo in uh, New York. And uh, in this case, there the aircraft was on approach uh, to Buffalo, and uh, while they were slowing and configuring, uh, the captain who was the pilot flying did not. Uh, add back in thrust after the airspeed reduction and as the aircraft was configuring, they ended up stalling and spinning into the ground, killing everyone on board and two, uh, I'm sorry, one person in a house with four injuries also on the ground. Um, in this accident, and again, I do have a shorter narrative of this in the book, um, but the NTSB said contributing to the accident were the flight crew's failure to monitor airspeed in relationship to the rising position of the low speed queue, the flight crew's failure to adhere to sterile cockpit procedures, and the captain's failure to effectively manage the flight. This specific accident gave rise to the legislation um, because the families of the victims of Colgan 3407 uh, brought together a grassroots effort um, to get changes made. And so, uh, indeed, uh, there was legislation that was passed. And in the uh, Airline Safety and Federal Aviation Administration Extension Act of 2010, uh, we ended up seeing uh, laws be put forward that required the FAA to address several issues that came up in these accidents um, and other incidents that have been seen around the industry and to change FARs as a result. So out of this, we, of course, have our new uh, flight time, duty time regulations under Part 117. Uh, we have the new experience uh, training and qualification standards in Part 61. Of course, everyone refers to this as the 1,500-hour rule change for airline transport pilots. Um, we have the new FARs, which we're going to be uh, talking about tonight, the requirements uh, for professionalism, leadership, and mentorship training for pilots. Um, there was an establishment of a pilot records database. Um, there's now a requirement for airlines to disclose to passengers when a flight is being operated by a regional carrier or partner. And there's now new requirements for safety management systems to be used at all Part 121 carriers. So a question that, of course, needs to be asked was, what did all these accidents have in common that gave rise uh, to the fact that we needed to change the regulations? There was lack of adherence to standard operating procedure. There was violations of sterile flight deck, improper aircraft control, uh, aircraft, aircraft control lack of professionalism, lack of leadership, and lack of mentorship. We put these things together and talk about how the pilots intentionally decided to break SOP, when they intentionally decided to break stroke cockpit, when they intentionally descended below the minimum descent altitude without having the airport, the airport environment in sight. We're talking about intentional non-compliance. In other words, the pilots decided that they're gonna break the rules. Intentional non-compliance is something that's being focused on very heavily right now. There's a lot of research that's going into finding out how much this is actually happening. Obviously, people make errors. People make mistakes. Um, we know that human factors is, is the causation of the majority of our airline accidents and incidents. Uh, but in, the, in several of these uh, incidents, we're finding that there's times when pilots just decide that they're not going to follow SOP. Some examples that we see all the time. 
uh, sterile flight deck violations, which was something that was uh, found in all three of the accidents I just spoke about. Doing checklists from memory, um, we see this quite often too, unfortunately. Uh, we know that pilots just get used to using a checklist all the time. They end up memorizing it. Sometimes they don't pick it up and actually read it or scroll through on a screen, however you're using it, electronic checklist, anything like that. Um, and then finally, another example we see quite often is people who are deciding to what we call cowboying a procedure. In other words, some non-normal uh, occurrence happens, let's say a generator trips offline. Um, most likely it's uh, the non-normal procedure is gonna lead the pilot down a pathway to reset the generator. And so pilots know this and they know the system and how it works. And so instead of pulling up the non-normal checklist and following the standard procedures there, they just reach up on the panel and reset the generator without going through the motions of actually doing the checklist. So that's intentional non-compliance. There's plenty of other examples I'm sure that pilots can think about and that pilots have seen. But here's the thing. Like I said, human factors are in play here and pilots make errors. In fact, um, line, uh, line observ observations, uh, flight tech observations, the data that we collect from those shows that on average, uh, there's two errors committed by pilots on each flight. And in fact, when I do line checks at work, um, most of the people I, I am checking are statistically average. Um, something gets unintentionally uh, not complied with, right? An error is made, whether it's a non-standard call out, whether it's um, you know doing something wrong in the FMC. And the errors do get caught most of the time, but here's the problem with intentional non-compliance, the errors that come from that. When there's intentional non-compliance, it doubles the errors and compounds the errors that are occurring on each flight segment. So pinning down exactly what we're talking about when it comes down to um, professional development and pilot professional development, um, a lot of people are asking you know, these questions like, well, what is professional development anyway? And how does that apply to being a pilot? Well, I can tell you right now, friends, what you're doing by participating in this webinar is professional development for pilots. We are participating in this tonight, not just to hear about the book, but to talk about professional development because you wanna be a better professional. If you're here to get wings credit, that's professional development too. Professional development is gaining a new skill for your job through continuing education and career training after entering the workforce. So doctors, lawyers, scientists, you name it, there's plenty of vocations uh, where in those fields, in order to maintain board certification, in order to maintain basically being at the top of their game professionally, those professionals go and partake in workshops and in webinars and, and, uh, and training, getting continuing education units granted to them. And that's what professional development is, just generally speaking. When we apply it in a uh, context for pilots, it boils down to this for the FARs. The FARs say there needs to be continual training on pilot leadership, flight tech leadership, command leadership, continual training on professionalism, and training specifically for captains on mentorship and how to mentor the people they're flying with because they're gonna be captains someday. Pilot professional development refers to the ongoing training and education the pilots undergo to maintain and improve their skills, knowledge, and competencies as professionals. So whether you're getting this through uh, the training you're getting from your airline or you're taking it upon yourself to actually get more knowledge and increase your knowledge, 
that's pilot professional development. And that's a good thing to be increasing the safety in our industry. One note that I found interesting here in the uh, advisory circular for the uh, airline transport pilot uh, CTP, uh, the certified training programs, this quote here, learning never stops. A responsible pilot will always seek more training, instruction, or professional development. So in order to do this, you need to have some kind of structure. And I'd like to, I like alliteration, so I'm gonna give you three E's to think about here. How do we do pilot professional development? Well, three E's to give you here. Uh, engage in an active process to become a better leader in the flight deck. Embrace airmanship as something you improve and seek all the time when you fly. And exemplify mentorship as responsibility and normal trait of strong pilot leadership. And this just doesn't fit for airline pilots. This fits for any type of a pilot, right? We know that flying airplanes is something that man wasn't supposed to do, if you think about it. We, we figure out the science, and now we're flying, and we have to have great respect for that. So pilot professionalism and working towards better airmanship, better leadership, and mentorship all comes down to being safer pilots overall. So one of the tools I have in the book uh, that really kind of drills down towards mitigating the threats of intentional non-compliance, making sure that we have good flight deck leadership, et cetera, is the pilots in command leadership model. Um, this was a model that I actually adapted from a well-known business leadership model that was developed by Professor Mark McCloskey out of Bethel University uh, in uh, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul. And the 4R business, business leadership model, and the 4Rs are relationships, roles, responsibilities, and results. And uh, the leadership model was put together by Professor McCloskey to assist organizations in maximizing the potential of transfer, transformation leadership of their business leaders and to foster organizational change. Oftentimes we talk about transformation leadership, meaning that you're not just influencing others, right? Leadership is commonly defined as the ability of a, uh, somebody to influence another person. But also transformational leadership means that the way you're influencing that person is causing them to become a leader and causing them to be a better professional, causing them to do their jobs better. So let's break this down a little bit more. First of all, the first R is relationships. And effective transformational leaders foster relationships with everybody that they work with. Um, in order to have these relationships, you have to have certain virtues um, that go into being a leader. And this isn't just the standard character virtues, but the, the virtues I'm going to talk about here in the pilot, pilot's command version of the 4-hour leadership model have to do with things that are occurring for pilot leaders. Pilot leaders have to have effective communications. That means communications are open. And they're two-way, right? Pilot leaders need to be taking in information uh, in a two-way communication format. They need to be taking information and then returning information, right? Honest discernment means taking in all facts and views with honesty and openness and having the ability to take that in to consideration because you're working in a crew environment most of the time. So pilot leaders need to take in uh, all viewpoints and, uh, and all information with honest discernment. Pilot leaders should have sole source integrity. Integrity means to keep something together. Uh, sole source integrity means that the pilot leader needs to have that integrity coming from within, coming from themselves, not just leaving it up to someone else to take care of something, but you taking charge and having the integrity to take care of it yourself. That then leads towards commitment to duty. 
Um, pilot leaders have an insert and should have an inherent sense of duty. Uh, your crew and your passengers are depending on you to come through with the task at hand. And then finally, promotion of teamwork. And you know that requirement that's in uh, the ATP uh, requirements, the good moral character pilots should have good moral character. On top of having good moral character, let's add in these virtues here for developing good relationships. If you have those going on for you, that means that organically uh, teamwork is going to generate amongst your crew. So the next R is roles. I get the slide to advance here. There we go. So what roles do a pilot play? Uh, in the 4R business model, the roles are spokesperson, coach, direction seeker, and change agent. When I read that, I thought, you know what? Pilots are doing that stuff too. It's not just people working in an office setting, but pilots are doing this every day as well. They're just doing it in a different environment. So instead of in an office, they're doing it in the flight regime, right? So we have places where pilots are influential outside of the flight deck and inside of the flight deck. It could be that you're handling someone something as a leader at the gates or talking to someone in the cabin like a flight attendant, not just working with your co-pilot in the flight deck. Also, the leadership model applies to the flight operation that's happening now, as well as flight operations that are happening in the future. So on the now side, a pilot is a spokesperson and a coach, and in the future side, future operations, the pilot leader is a direction seeker and a change agent. The way that we move between these present operations and future operations side of the, of the leadership model is through communication and mentoring. So the pilot spokesperson is communicating with his uh, coworkers, whether they be co-pilot, flight attendant, ramp workers, whatever. They're communicating to then set direction, being a direction seeker for the, for the future of the operation. And then as the, as the pilot leader is a coach, they're using mentoring skills to become a change agent. And this gets back to transformational leadership that we talked about briefly a couple of slides back. Mentoring, when it comes down to it, is just the use of teaching, representing, and motivating tools in order to help someone become better at their skills. So the pilot leader, the coach, is mentoring with teaching, representing, and motivating, and they become a change agent then in the future oper oper uh, operating regime. So the next R is responsibilities. And the definition of a pilot command comes to us from uh, FAR 91.3, Responsibility and Authority of the Pilot Command. The pilot command of an aircraft is, just, is directly responsible for and the final authority as to the operation of the aircraft. However, FAR 91.3 does not specify what responsibilities a pilot has. But I think we could probably figure that out on our own. So when I was developing this model for the book, I looked at what the responsibilities were under the business version of the 4R model and said, I think we could probably categorize these for pilots, right? So under the 4R business model uh, responsibilities, we have vision casting, strategy making, aligning, and encouraging. And when we put that into the pilot version of the leadership model, responsibilities of a pilot and command are safety of the operation, efficiency of the operation, the crew dynamics of the operation, and mentoring and duty to the operation. And this all should link together with the things we just talked about with the roles and with the uh, relationships that the pilot leader develops. So you add up 
relationships, roles, responsibilities, and we should see results. That's the fourth R. Um, the results should be qualitative, and they can be quantitative, quantitative too. So under qualitative results, we should see pilots using this leadership model. We should see an increase overall in safety. We should see higher means of efficiency being used. And there should be a good customer response out of it as well. If things are going well on the jet or on the turboprop, depending on what you're flying, uh, the customers are probably going to be happy. Quantitatively, we could we should be able to look at uh, FOQA data, look at um, LOSA data, anything that's coming out of maybe an evaluation, um, anything that's coming out of our AQP data. We should be seeing those uh, these quantitative metrics come up as well. So things like schedule performance, cost performance, how people are performing on their check rides, customer metrics, these, these results can be quantifiable as well. So it's probably a good time to get into some questions. I've been talking for quite some time now. Um, and uh, before we do, I just wanna talk about the picture on this slide here. This is me actually in Redmond, uh, Washington. Uh, we had just arrived um, after a snowstorm had come in and the temperature was dropping rapidly. And I'm talking to the uh, the lead ramp agent here and I'm telling him that because of the drop in the temperature, we're gonna have to leave the APU running as the airplane is staying overnight. And he's leaning on his shovel here and he's saying to me, oh man, we barely got a skeleton crew to come in tonight because of the snow. Do we have to have someone wait here? I had to put on my leader hat, right? <laughs> and say, you know what, it's gonna be okay. Uh, the future of the operation is going to be just fine. You don't have to monitor it. The APU auto shutdown will, will work just fine on its own. And he went, that breathe a sigh of relief. So again, outside of the in, outside of the operation, the pilot leader is still responsible for his roles. He's still responsible for uh, the results of what that operation is going to be going forward. Um, and he can be influential. So with that, Brian, uh, do we have some questions we can go ahead and field? Yeah, Chris, we do. Um, let's see. We'll start here. Um, experience required to occupy the right seat. There is some debate over that. Do you have an opinion about um, the ongoing debate regarding experience required to occupy the right seat? Do you have sure. an opinion about that? Okay. Yeah, so this goes back to the 1500-hour rule, right? This is one of the big rules that came out of the lawmaking after those three crashes that occurred. And um, uh, I do believe that we have increased the level of safety by a wide margin because of increasing the amount of experience that pilots need to occupy the right seat. It used to be that you just had to have to have a commercial pilot certificate with an instrument rating and a multi-engine rating most likely as well. Um, that's how it was when I got hired at my first airline job. And uh, we saw people all the time coming into the airline, especially when hiring was needed. We had some people coming in with the bare minimum of hours, right? So they had uh, just <laughs> gotten the ink to dry on their commercial pilot certificate. And here they are being thrown into um, uh, the airline operation. Um, so as far as the experience required, the ATP, CTP standards that were put out there is filling in the gap on that. So it's not just the amount of hours, it's the amount of quality instruction that the pilots are getting to get to their ATP. If you have less than 1,500 hours or going through a certifi certified training program, then you're able to get that ATP, but just with the restriction that you can't be a, a pilot in command until you get the full 1,500. There's a lot of debate right now as to whether or not the 1,500 $100 mark is too high, especially with the cost it takes to get through pilot training. 
but I think that there's actually some uh, some work that's being done to make sure that um, that that pilot training is going to be accessible to people, right? Because of the cost issues, and so my opinion really focuses on making sure that we keep those standards in place, right? We still need to have the hourly requirement. We still need to have the training standards, but let's make flight training more accessible to people. Let's. I know, you know, flying airplanes isn't cheap, but let's try to uh, go the route of some of the airlines are doing these days where they're trying to fit together right. some ab initio programs, help sponsor, uh, provide incentives. things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, that's um, fine. Yes, I, I, I did speak with some, uh, I'm not going to plug any airlines, but I, I did speak with some that, that have some programs now where they will fund part of your training. You pay for the rest of it, but they get you started, they get you going and you know on their track so they're training you the way they want to train you etc um, okay yeah. great um let's see we've got another question here uh with the demand for pilots more pilots are you seeing a higher or lower pass rate for initial airline pilots do you have any data on that um, I don't have any data actually on what the pass fail rate is for new airline pilots. I know that we do have that that happens, right? Um, it's not like the airlines um, are seeing any big changes in that. Um, I do think that um, it's probably been about where it's always been. Again, I don't have any data to back it up, but I'm not hearing as a check pilot, I'm not hearing anything on my side where we're, we're finding that there's any change in the, in the pass fail rate for our new hires. Um, you know, part part of that is, especially at, at, and I think this is common at all airlines, but it's certainly common in my, it's certainly the case of my airline. When we hire a pilot, we've gone through a whole process, a very rigorous process to determine if that person is going to fit at our airline. And it's not necessarily on, can they fly the plane mm -hmm. properly? Because we're going to train them to do that, right? So we will get that pilot the training that they need to complete the qualification process at the airline. Um, and... Okay. Do we have pilots that don't make it through? Absolutely, but it's really a rare case. Um, we're typically trying to get them to that level of safety and proficiency that we need to see before they actually get on the line. And that's typically mm -hmm. how we handle it. Right, okay, great. Yeah, we want them to be successful for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> um, let's see, um, this is interesting. Pilots need to accept input from other pilots on board, but this wasn't always the case. That's a question. So is that yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I, I'm not exactly sure um, where that question is coming from as far as pilots maybe making talking about pilots versus co-pilot. I mean, we're, we've actually kind of moved in the industry from trying to very much differentiate between captain and first officer maybe, but I know that um, it's usually thought of a lot of times as pilot versus co-pilot. And I think that there probably was always a little bit of a stigma that because the guy wearing the four stripe, the captain or the pilot, maybe as is being called commonly here, mm -hmm. that person is calling the shots, right? They have they end up taking the the position of, hey, it's gonna be my decision anyway, so I don't necessarily have to listen to you. I'm gonna decide. Um, that has never been something that's been promoted, I think, by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, when uh, command leadership training uh, started out uh, a few, three decades ago now, um, and started really being developed as part of um, not just learning about crew resource management skills, um, but training 
captains that, hey, it's better to have those resources come in. It's it's the mm-hmm. good thing to have someone come up in the flight tech. One of the, the key uh, uh, stories is, of course, uh, the Sioux City crash, United Airlines Sioux City crash, I think back in 1989, where um, Captain Al Haynes, um, who was the captain of that, um, uh, I believe it was the DC-10, um, you know, they lost all hydraulics and they ended up, it was the captain, first officer, and then they ended up having um, a third pilot who was just commuting come up from the back and help them get the airplane as managed as it can to get on the ground. Now, people obviously did, it was a, it was uh, an aircraft accident with fatalities, um, mm-hmm. but they saved lives because they were able to get that help, right, and get the input they needed. And I think one, I'm not going to do this quote very much um, good here, but I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think Haynes is, is quoted as saying, it's a cinch if we hadn't have that other input, if we didn't have that other help, then we wouldn't have made it at all. So I think that um, definitely over the last 30 plus years, um, it's always, always taught and trained that pilots need to, this includes pilots sitting in both seats, right? You need to have that feedback going back and forth. You need to have the check and balance of taking into consideration, this is what I talked about in the leadership model of having the uh, the ability to have um, honest discernment, you know, taking all the viewpoints. So Mm. that's how I'd answer it. Okay, great. Uh, one more, and then we'll move on. There's a couple more okay. questions, but we'll, I want to finish your presentation. Um, you know, so, uh, but this is from a CFI standpoint. Can you speak to the value of your book uh, or the information in it for initial CFI candidates? How can they use that to to benefit? Sure. Well, even though the book is really kind of targeting more people that are looking forward to an airline industry job, um, if you're just looking to get your CFI, the book is good in talking about again, these types of things about being a leader, you know, how to take into consideration um, the the job you have as a pilot leader. Um, what does that look like um, in the context of uh, trying to get through a initial qualification course at an airline? Um, that that's There's a lot of training information in the book. Um, so I think for CFI candidates, um, aside from focusing on uh, learning how to be a flight instructor, it's also good to learn these other soft skills um, that we're talking about with in terms of pilot professional development. In fact, it's a good segue question because the next tool we're going to talk about here is the Pilots in Command Superb Airmanship Model. And I, I think all pilots need to be um, driving and engaging towards having better airmanship. And that's the biggest takeaway I think that um, a CFI candidate could have from the book. And, and those CFIs are very well likely training people who will be airline pilots, whether the CFI is going to remain in a CFI position, uh, the, the people they're training might, you know, so that's good advice they can impart to them as well. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Okay. Uh, why don't you take it back and, uh, uh, yeah, uh, move on. Sounds good. So, yeah, uh, the next piece that I want to talk about here before we finish things up is the superb airmanship model. And this is, the uh, model that I put in this uh, most recent edition of the book that um, has to do with developing uh, this quest for airmanship, right? And sometimes figuring out, okay, what does airmanship mean can be kind of elusive, but this goes back to the ease I talked about before, right? And we have to be able to engage in some kind of uh, process to become better pilot leaders and also to be better pilots overall. Um, so in this model, I tried to think about, you know, how do I work on my airmanship? What kind of habits do I have? Um, what do I do to try to to increase uh, my airmanship, so to speak? And here's what it boils down to. Um, these blocks that are in the bottom of this kind of pyramid 
uh, graphic that's here to talk about the model. Um, experience, judgment, proficiency, and performance are the synergistic components of my airmanship model, right? When I fly, it involves pulling together everything I've experienced as a pilot, the use of sound judgment, and flying at my highest level of proficiency. Experience, judgment, and proficiency, therefore, then form the foundation here. And then we then work towards having better performance and better efficiency that goes into play here. I use routines, debriefings, and quite frankly, just study to increase my mindfulness and my knowledge about my craft, about being a pilot. And then I also use technique, SOP triggers, and automation to uh, increase my flying skills and faculties. And I'll get into what that looks like here the next few slides. So as far as routines are concerned, you can see I got the goat on here, Mr. Tom Brady. Um, I'm gonna talk about uh, why he's on here in a second here, but routines are, utilized to engage the pilots and command superb airmanship model, right? The things that I do before a trip, during a trip, and after a trip all come into play here. So one of the big parts of routines is debriefing. Um, pilots oftentimes brief, right? We do pre-flight briefings talking about weather, what the configuration of the airplane is going to be, what the routing is going to be what have you, right? There's a lot of pre-flight briefing that we're very, very used to. Something that pilots should really lean into to increase their airmanship is debriefing. And in Tom Brady's case, he debriefed after every game several times. He would debrief with his teammates, he would debrief with his coaches, and then he would debrief himself to himself, basically from what I've understood. And he would ask these questions like, you know, what went well with the game? What what was what was the the piece of the game that was crucial that allowed us to win or what caused us to lose that game right um what can we do better um since we lost the game well, how can we change that and then what should we do in the next game and those are the types of things that a football player is you know doing in his debriefings we can do the same thing as pilots um after a flight take some time to you know just casually talk about you know, how the flight went, what was good about it, what was bad about it. If it was all good, why was it good? You know, did we do a good job of making sure that we had a really good briefing in the beginning and checking the weather? Did that contribute to being good? Or is it just because, you know, we're patting each other the backs and, and chest bumping because we're good? Have something concrete to go behind that. So the briefings are, are crucial both before and during and after a trip. So on trips, I'm, you know, uh, before I go on a trip, I'm, I have a routine that includes not just packing for my trip, but thinking about the weather, thinking about the flights I'm going to be operating, where I'm going to be operating. Have I been there before? Do I need to do some, some study because I haven't been to that airport in the last two years, things like that. During the trip, get to a layover hotel, I'm thinking to myself, all right, what happened today? What can I learn from that? What do I need to prepare? What happened paperwork-wise I need to take care of? You know, What kind of routines are happening during the trip? And then after the trip, I even think back to, okay, I did the trip this way this this time. What can I do about it next time? So those routines come together and really kind of build um, that not, that knowledge and that mindfulness going forward into any future trips that I have and increase my airmanship in those. Uh, study question for everyone out there: How, When you when are you poking your nose back into the books? Um, oftentimes, I see pilots they're busting out their flight manuals when they're getting ready for a check ride. And um, that's definitely a time to do it. You should bone up and study and get ready for um, a proficiency check or a qual check or something like that. But 
hey, why not be looking up something that is of interest or, hey, I, you know, I saw, I heard or heard a story that the airplane did this the other day to this crew. I'm going to go into the manual and find out why that would happen. You know, when are you poking your nose back into the books? What did you learn from your last flight? You need to study more. What is something new that you want to learn about? Obviously, there's plenty of resources out there for pilots to get their hands on, whether it's a new book, whether it's an article, whether it's a, a website that's got information specifically about your airplane. I mean, dig into it. Why not? Uh, the next piece then is uh, technique. And the one thing I wanted to point out first and foremost is that when we talk about techniques, we're not talking about replacements for standard operating procedures. In fact, I'm going to talk in a second here about how technique and standard operating procedure actually fit together. Um, but SOPs are SOPs, right? If you have a prescripted way, a procedure uh, in your manual, whether it's coming from the manufacturer or from the air carrier working for, you need to follow that SOP. It was written for a reason, and there's no excuse not to. If you, do, if you don't follow it, it's intentional noncompliance. But technique can help us to make sure we're doing the SOPs properly. So first of all, uh, techniques to maximize comfort. This should come as probably no surprise to most pilots is that we're always trying to, in terms of airmanship, fly the aircraft as smoothly and as, and as completely sublime as possible, right? Um, Sully wrote about it in his book um, when talking about, you know, trying to make sure that he could, you know, get the best optimized profile descent going into um, an airport so he could have power off the whole time and not have to use speed brakes. He wanted to be as smooth as possible. So smoothness in the controls, transitions between climbs and, and level off and descent, things like that. Well, um, you know, even braking uh, when you're slowing down on the runway. How can you make it so it's super comfortable for the people in back? Um, I like to tell people when I'm training them um, on aircraft, and right now I'm, I'm a pilot on the Airbus fleet, um, that the Airbus is really forgiving in landings because it lands pretty nicely on landing gear, um, got a, a, a pretty good cushion to it. But even if you have a firm landing in that airplane, as long as you're not slamming on the brakes and having the passengers eat the seat in front of them, <laughs> which makes them not very happy, but, you know, if people have to grab on and, feel nervous about how that feels, that's when they don't like the landing. You can have a firm landing in the airplane, and as long as you're not making them feel like the rollout is loud, noisy, or that they have to brace themselves, they're going to walk out that airplane and say, that was an awesome landing, even if you didn't butter it on, like people like to say these days. So techniques that maximize safety. Um, the proper execution of standard operating procedure uh, is what the technique is to maximize safety, right? Do the SOP the right way every single time, and you're going to ensure yourself that you're maximizing safety. And then finally, maximizing efficiency. Um, consistent use of standard operating procedures that are for efficiency's sake, things like single engine taxi, limiting the use of the APU, picking the right cruise altitude or speed for your flight, uh, getting the most efficient routing, whatever it might be. We're taught to do these things as SOP, and we naturally do these things as pilots. How often do you keep on mentally thinking, yep, I'm going to keep on using that as a technique to maximize efficiency? That's how you can increase your uh, airmanship that way. As far as following SOPs is concerned, I like to use triggers, and a lot of pilots do. Um, in fact, it's natural for a lot of our, our profiles and our flows to use these triggers. For example, um, a verbal trigger is... Uh, well, a, a full example here, a visual, verbal, and physical trigger altogether 
is when you take off and someone calls out positive rate and the standard response at our airline is someone has to say, usually the pilot flying says gear up, pause rate, gear up. That's the visual, the verbal, and now the physical is putting landing gear up. And the way that we fly the Airbus at my airline is as soon as landing gear gets put up, the speed gear, the speed brakes are disarmed. It's a physical trigger to uh, disarm the speed brakes. We can batch these together as well. When I'm training pilots, for example, um, to do their parking procedure in our airplane, I'm telling them to break it down by all the different triggers they hear. Once the, the captain sets the parking brake, verifies, and both pilots verify that the parking brake is set, the captain calls out parking brake set pressure normal. That's the verbal trigger for the first officer to turn off fasten seatbelt sign. And then when the captain says shut down the engines, the first officer shuts down the engines and then goes through a batches of other standard operating procedure things to do to reset switches, turn off pumps, things like that in, in the aircraft. That's SOP trigger batching. Um, and these triggers, when it all comes down to it, it helps you mitigate the risk of unintentional non-compliance, right? It reduces the number of errors that you're making because you're using these triggers to make sure that you're complying with standard operating procedure. And then finally, automation management. One of the things I point out in the book is it's okay to get geeky <laughs> with automation, right? And you should, this goes back to study as well. Um, before you're using automation in your airplane, this isn't just when you're training, but also as you're flying the airplane and learning to become more proficient in the airplane, understand exactly why the automation does what it does and how it does it, okay? Um, look in the books. Um, I just, on a line check I was doing um, just this last week, we're talking about something that the airplane had done and how to manage that differently. We're debriefing it. And the first officer said, you know what? I need some more information on how the flight management system actually calculates these things and does this. And I said, do you have the, the guidebook for that? And we have our, our flight manual, but there's a separate guide you can get for that FMGC unit. And he said, no. And I said, I have it. I'll airdrop it to you. And so I airdropped him. He's like, okay, this is a lot of information, but this is exactly what I'm looking for because he wanted to learn that. He wanted to understand the airplane's automation better. And then there's three A's that I like to use when it comes down to automation management. The first one is anticipate. You should always be anticipating what the aircraft is going to do when you select a different autopilot mode, when you select a different auto flight mode, whatever it might be. You need to adhere to standard operating procedure and FARs. Um, you need to make sure that even though you're using that automation, that it's not going to put you outside of the flight envelope, um, breaking in airspeed. I have an anecdote in the, in the book about um, a flight that I was on where I was um, actually sitting in the jump seat and the pilot flying was exceeding the 250 knot speed limit, well, 10,000 feet. Well, the autopilot was on and he wasn't managing the energy and the captain had to say, uh, you know, 250 knots below 10,000 feet isn't just like a recommendation, it's a rule. So you got to change something here. And he had to act. <laughs> he had to act. He had to be prepared. You should be prepared to intervene when the automation does not do what you want it to do or what you think it was supposed to do. And then finally, and this isn't on the slide directly here, but this is directly here, but this is just an overall maxim. Hand flying the airplane is the antidote to automation saturation. And quite frankly, is the best way you can think of automation management. Um, 
Sometimes you just got to click off the autopilot and fly the darn thing to make sure that you're, you're adhering and, um, and being safe. So that's the superb airmanship model. That's putting together all these pieces of uh, what I see, what I do, um, and what I think pilots will be helpful for other pilots to think about as they're trying to increase their, their, um, their airmanship. So just to put a, a bow on everything here, Brian, before we uh, get into some of the rest of the questions tonight, um, you know, pilot professional development is something that we need to engage in. Um, it's something that's not just required by the FARs, but it's something the pilots should just be doing, right? Whether you're a private pilot, whether you're a, a leisure pilot, um, uh, or you're, you know, corp it doesn't matter, corporate cargo, what flying uh, crop sprayers, <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, having the ability to think, hey, there's ways that I can become a better pilot professional is the way we sh all should be operating. And so I'm a big, a big proponent of that. I'm happy that the regulations went in place that are requiring it now, the airlines, so that um, we're getting better resources, um, not just at the airline level, but more things are coming through curriculum. Um, things like the book go to that end, um, and I'm, I'm just happy to be a part of it. Um, so that's that. Let's take some more questions. I think you're muted. Sorry about that. It's okay. <laughs> I've been answering. Yeah, I've been. I've been answering, and yes, and and, and responding, and no wonder. Okay. Uh, no, we do have some questions that fall right in line with what you were just talking about. In fact, I'm going to skip to this most recent one, which someone um, you know said it might be a silly question, but I don't think it is at all. I was thinking about this uh, the same same thing. You know, how often do you run into or recognize complacency in other? pilots you interact with, specifying ATP pilots, so I'm assuming airline pilots, you know, how often do you recognize that? And that, that was part of what I was thinking is, you know, what kind of a role does that play? Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes it's an ego thing, sometimes it's a, you know, it's a delicate balance when you have to work together. But, um, but to answer their question, um, how often do you run into or recognize complacency in other pilots and how, what do you do about it? Yeah. So a big part of um, what I do as a check pilot is to make sure that crew members are working together to back each other up. And one of the things I like to see, even when I'm not in check pilot role, if I'm just flying a normal trip and um, you know, someone makes them, the, the person I'm flying with makes a mistake and I catch them on it, whether it was a complacency or just whatever it was, I just say, they'll be like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. They'll apologize for it. Um, and I'll say, hey, this is a team sport. <laughs> so, you know, complacency to me is mitigated by the fact that you do have two pilots in the flight deck um, or more, right? So I know that um, that's a big part of it. I know that obviously in the world of AI and automation and things like that, we're thinking about the possibility of reducing the number of pilots in the flight deck. I think it's the silliest idea in the world. Um, because that's specifically what that's for, right? I think that um, having the ability to have two pilots to check and balance each other, that's what mitigates the complacency. Does it happen? Okay, it happens, right? I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll do a line check where I do see some complacency, but the complacency comes out not just in um, uh, an error being made, right? It comes out in then the crew dynamic breaking down because pilot A makes a mistake because they're being complacent and pilot B is like, Hey man, you got to make sure you do it this way and catches it on them. 
and that keeps up, then we have a problem with how those pilots are getting along too. So it becomes a crew, a crew interaction, a crew resource management issue. So it's seen out there, but I think pilots are really good about backing each other up um, in a crew environment. And so I think it's mitigated for the most part. And helping each other, hopefully. Um, yeah. Which brings us right to our next one, recent FAA and PRM concerning 135 ops. Do you have any insights? Uh, oh, another question just came, sorry. Do you have any insights concerning required adoption of part 121 CRM, threat management and increased situal, situational awareness models? Yeah, so I'm not, uh, I'm not familiar with the NPRM out for 135 ops. I think I've heard a couple of things about it. And basically I think what the person asking the question is, is saying um, is that they're looking forward to possibly implementing those uh, mm -hmm. same types of training uh, requirements on the 135 side as we're having on the 121 side, specifically when it comes down to kind of some higher level CRM training, some higher level uh, pilot professional development requirements. Um, I do think it's important. I mean, we have regional operators now, um, SkyWest being the one I'm thinking of off the top of my head, who's starting up a 135 operation. Now, SkyWest has been, is a long time um, operator under part 121. So they're gonna be flying their 135 op the, the way I would hope, the way that they've been flying a very safe and successful 121 op. Um, but for new 135 operators or other operators that might be starting up, um, I would hope that the FAA wants to have the same level of safety. It's one of the things that was an issue after the Colgan accident where, where people were saying, you know what, I bought a Continental Airlines ticket but here I find out I'm operating at, I'm, it's being operated by Colgan Air. I don't know who they are, but it seems to me that they had different standards than Continental did, which was actually found to be true. And so ever since then, the changes in the regulations are trying to make all 121 operators equal and on the same footing. That's the job that the FAA has before them is to try to get everyone on the same level of, this is how we're gonna make sure pilots are maintaining their professionalism their airmanship, things like that. So I do hope as well that um, the same level of safety that's required of 121 operators is gonna be required at 135 as well. Okay, great. A uh, couple more questions here, and then we'll wrap it up. We're about at an hour, but uh, we don't have to end right at six o'clock unless uh, okay. everybody's gotta go. Um, sure. We've got time for two more questions, we'll do that. So it's an interesting one. The 250 knots below 10,000 feet brings up uh, a question. My impression is that it is common that, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to, let me read this one more time. My impression is that it is common that that particular rule is broken, maybe at some airlines more than others. How do you handle that as a new first officer? This type of thing is one of my biggest fears when thinking about making a career out of flying? It's a really great question, actually. I think it's a fantastic question, and here's why, is um, I find that pilots can be a little reticent about trying to speak up, especially if they're brand new. And one of the things that I tell uh, the pilots that I train uh, when I'm doing what's called initial operating experience, when I'm taking a pilot who's just completed their simulator training, they've done their what's called a line-oriented evaluation where they actually get their uh, their certificate uh, with their new type rating. And then they come out, they actually do on-the-job training on the flight line on live flights with me as the check pilot, and I'm training them to actually fly the real airplane, right? So we've done all the sim training, done all the classroom training. Now we're on the real flight line and operating live flights. One of the things I tell them in the briefing before we get started 
is first officers, new first officers, have this idea about leadership effectiveness. Like I couldn't possibly have any ability to have leadership effectiveness because I'm not the ultimate leader. I'm not wearing the fourth stripe. You know, I'm always answering to the guy in the left seat. And I tell them, I say, but here's the here's the fact. Leadership effectiveness for for co-pilots or first officers is the ability to speak up and say, hey, instead of going you know 10 degrees to the right of that thunderstorm captain, what if we go 10 degrees to the left because the wind's coming from the other direction? Or, hey, don't forget, it's uh, we got to slow to 250 before we get below 10. It's an error that we see and brief all the time going into cities. I'm trying to think of one. Oh, Chicago here does this all the time. You come down on the arrivals, they have you sometimes right at 10,000 feet going 300 knots to get in, to stay into sequence, and then they'll tell you to descend and maintain 7,000. Air traffic control doesn't and shouldn't have to remind you that you have to slow to 250 before you can leave 10,000 feet. So we brief that as a threat. But it's something that, again, talking about that relationship between the two pilots, not allowing each other to be complacent and talking about, hey, there's a threat here. Um, we could get trapped at, um, and forget that we have to slow to 250 before we descend. So back to this question, very specifically, why it's a good question. Um, the question uh, it said, you know, one of the biggest fears thinking about pursuing a career out of flying. Well, pursuing that career means that you're going to be held to a standard where you're going to have to speak up even when you're the first officer. You're going to say, hey, man, you got to do that properly because we're all involved in this together, right? It's not you flying single pilot. It's us. We got passengers we're taking care of in back. So you do have to speak up. Now, are you going to run into some bad personalities that aren't going to like that? Absolutely. But what's better is what's what's going to be uh, better, making sure that guy is friends with you at the end of the day or making sure that, you know, you don't have an accident or incident. I think it's obviously well, the latter. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to um, remind remind this captain that it's not just my opinion or my feeling. It's these people here <laughs> dealing with right. on this airplane. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. OK. Um, Lastly, let's just close it out with your book. Uh, this question here, is your book used in course curricula and is there a teaching guide available? So last I heard, I knew of uh, at least Laterno University down in Texas, I think uses the book as part of, I think they're one of their 400 level courses. Um, I don't know if it's a CRM course or what, but the uh, one of the uh, faculty members had reached out to me a few years back um, and I think at the time we were in second edition. Um, so I, I don't know if they're still using it. I'm hoping they are. Um, I don't know specifically. Um, I haven't gotten reached out by um, When we did the second edition, I actually did publish a workbook that was um, kind of like a side thing. I had it on my website. Um, if we uh, go forward with possibly doing a workbook in the third edition, it'll have to be something that will be coordinated through ASA um, rather than through my website. But um, mm -hmm. Uh, we you know, definitely want to see uh, this as being as a, a, a curriculum resource. We think it, um, I think, and I think Brian would think too, being the marketing director, that it, it would be a fantastic tool for uh, for uh, all levels of aviation, whether it's colleges, universities, flight schools, especially for these. For, we have a lot of pilots going through training. We have a big demand for pilots right now that are looking forward to airline careers. And Pilots in Command, is it would be a fantastic book to be used in curriculum. Great. All right. Um, I think that's going to do it. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Remember, you can pick up the latest edition of Chris's book, Pilots in Command, uh, 
at your local FBO, favorite online retailer, or at asafly.com. And Chris, thank you so much. This has been very uh, educational for me, and I hope for everybody else. It was very enjoyable, and thank you for doing such a providing such a great uh, a great presentation. Thanks, Brian. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on tonight. You bet. You bet. And take care. I want to thank John Typen at Aeronautical Proficiency Training for helping us bring this presentation to you this evening. Uh, he's been a great asset. He taught us how to do all this and make it work, and hopefully it was smooth and, and everybody enjoyed it. Uh, remember, this presentation is also archived for viewing at uh, your convenience anytime at asapresents.net. And thank you for joining us for our first uh, author talk. We hope you found it helpful, informational, and educational. Take care. Have a great night.